0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which publishes loads of titles of interest to Dig listeners like you. One that you might find interesting is Enclosure, Palestinian Landscapes in a Historical Mirror by Gary Fields. Enclosure marshals new arguments about the nature of the conflict in Israel-Palestine by examining the dispossession of Palestinians from their land and Israel's rationale for seizing control of Palestinian land by taking on a broad analysis of power, space, and an enduring discourse about land improvement. Looking at Palestine in comparison to the English enclosures, which eradicated access to common land across the English countryside, and Amerindian dispossession in colonial America, Fields shows that the same moral, legal, and cartographic arguments were used by enclosers in very different places and times, and in doing so challenges Israel's claim that it is uniquely persecuted. Enclosure, Palestinian Landscapes in a Historical Mirror, by Gary Fields, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Ideally, the Olympics is a beautiful thing, an event that allows countries to compete in sport rather than war, and that celebrates outstanding human athletic achievement. In reality, the Olympics is a heavily corporate endeavor that frequently brings financial harm, along with all kinds of other harms, to cities. On Wednesday, the International Olympic Committee announced that the 2024 Games will be held in Paris, and that the 2028 Games will be held in Los Angeles. In LA, the local Democratic Socialists of America chapter has taken the lead in mobilizing opposition. My guests today are Molly Lambert and Jules Boykoff. Molly Lambert is a writer based in Los Angeles who writes about culture in California and who can't believe LA isn't a sanctuary city. She's also a member of Los Angeles DSA. Jules Boykoff is the author of three books on the Olympics, most recently, Power Games, a political history of the Olympics from Verso. He has written on the politics of sports for places like The Guardian, New York Times, New Left Review, The Los Angeles Times, and Jacobin, and teaches politics at Pacific University in Oregon. Before we get started... As you might recall me mentioning frequently in recent weeks, we are trying to get to 700 total supporters on Patreon.com by the end of the calendar year. So far this month, we have more than 60 new supporters, and that is really great. If you keep it up, we can meet the goal. So if you like that I added this second weekly show and enjoyed this week's two-hour-plus special on Houston history, press pause now and make a donation at patreon.com slash the dig that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig it'll only take a minute and it will make me very happy if you can do a dollar a dollar is great if you can do 10 bucks i'll send you a copy of the abcs of socialism if you do 20 or more i'll send you lots of great books okay thanks so much for your support and for listening And on to the show. Molly and Jules, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: So the IOC has named L.A. the site of the 2028 Summer Olympics. Molly, let's start with you. What is DSA LA's case against the Olympics coming to town?
1: Well, we think that LA has a lot of pressing issues that money could be better spent on than uh, spending that money on the Olympics and bringing a sort of frivolous party to Los Angeles when we have a lot of very serious pressing issues that are very apparent to anyone in Los Angeles. Um, Issues like the housing crisis particularly, which affects everybody that is a renter, which is most people in Los Angeles. Uh, And we have a very large homeless population um, who I think we all agree um, there are lots of things in Los Angeles that you could spend money on um, besides an Olympics that L.A. really needs.
0: Jules, um, you've studied the Olympics for quite a long time. What is their track record in terms of how cities have made out both financially and in other terms. Athens and Montreal come to mind as not great outcomes.
2: Yes, absolutely, and that's that's the trend line with the Olympics in the modern era. And there's a lot of problems that have developed Athens is a dream one where you have sort of a herd of white elephant stadiums left behind, the kind of misspending that Molly was describing, opportunity costs, you know, you're spending money on the Olympics that you could spend on other worthwhile programs and that's not to mention the sort of economic etch-a-sketch that's become endemic to the olympics meaning up front they tend to say that the olympics are going to cost one thing when in the end they end up costing quite a bit more and that's a trend that academics especially economists have mapped over time is that there's a huge cost increase and you know the the social ramifications outside of costs are huge with the olympics and give you a couple examples i'm Beijing, there was 1.5 million people were displaced to make way for the Games. 1.5 million. Rio de Janeiro, where I lived in the lead-up to the Olympics uh, and visited communities, there were 77,000 people displaced to make way for Olympic infrastructure. So the track record is actually pretty grim, and that's not to mention the militarization of public space that comes along with the Games after all, it's gotten so big these days that it's become a target of terrorism. You think about Munich 72, you think about Atlanta 96. And so they spend a lot of money on anti-terrorism measures. And when the terrorists don't show up, and God willing, they won't, uh, the activists do. And the authorities have all these weapons that they can turn on activists who challenge the machine. So those are kind of the general trend lines that academics have kind of looked at over time. And I'd say they've infiltrated the the way we talk about the games in the public sphere as well.
0: So for L.A. specifically, how might this play out financially and in terms of other impacts on the city? I'm specifically wondering about whether it might pose a risk to the thousands of homeless and poor people who live downtown around Skid Row.
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is one of our main concerns, and that's how we ended up starting this campaign. The Snow Olympics campaign was out of work we were doing with the Skid Row community, um, who are very aware that they are a vulnerable community and that vulnerable people are sort of the, the people who tend to to bear the brunt of the the problems with the Olympics. So, yeah, we're not just concerned about where the money is going. We're also concerned about just energy and, and resources, public resources that could be spent taking care of people that actually live in Los Angeles, um, you know, going to this big sort of party for rich people and, um, you know, focusing on housing tourists and housing athletes when we can't house all the people in our own city who desperately need housing just seems like a really, a really insane thing to us.
0: And a follow up on Skid Row, just for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's really unlike anything I've ever seen in any other American city. I've did a story a little while back on just the history of really um, intensive policing there because it's it's this massive neighborhood full of um, SROs and um, homeless people who who camp on the sidewalks that is directly adjacent to a really uh, rapidly gentrifying downtown and the result has been repeated efforts by the city of L.A. to uh, push the homeless off the streets which uh, federal courts have checked over time but Molly can you can you lay out sort of what the what the reality in in Skid Row is, and specifically what you what you see potentially as the risks being.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I was very surprised to learn, um, how sort of when I was getting involved with this campaign. One thing that really surprised me was finding out that Skid Row was not protected as a historically important neighborhood because it has been a place for uh, homeless people and just down on their luck people to to go and to live. You know, since the 1920s in Los Angeles, it has like a plaque. It's uh, it's Woody Guthrie's Skid Row now because Woody Guthrie spent a lot of time there and was kind of radicalized by spending time around a lot of down on their luck people during the Great Depression who who ended up there, who came to California looking for opportunities and found that there were no more opportunities left for them and ended up, you know, homeless. Um, so, you know, the that community is very aware that they are. Tar- being targeted by, by people that wanted them um, and who want to develop downtown and make downtown just a total luxury place for rich people and don't want them to have to see the economic realities of Los Angeles. And so what we're really concerned about with the Olympics is that they will use it as an excuse to sort of speed up all this development that they want to do and allow developers to take over these areas and you know, to push to push the homeless residents out of Los Angeles um, as as best they can, and the homeless community is very aware that they are being targeted for displacement, and that things like the Olympics are are ways that people speed up this process of displacement by making a lot of deals with developers, and you know, sort of a, a lot of turning places into Airbnbs has been a big issue in Los Angeles recently, where we have a huge housing crisis, and. People can't afford to rent, they can't afford to buy, and then, you know, people are being forced out of their homes by landlords who want to turn those places into Airbnbs. So, you know, we obviously know that if the Olympics comes to Los Angeles, a lot of landlords are going to see that as an opportunity to kick people out. And just anyone who is in a vulnerable position for housing, which is most people in Los Angeles, you know, will be affected by this and the, the homeless community know that they will be the most affected. And so they're very, very aware of what their position is uh, to some of these these people that just prefer them not to be there. Um, and we don't think that's fair. We think those people deserve to be housed and deserve to live in Los Angeles where where they have made a home. And uh, that that is one of our main concerns.
2: Yeah, and I yeah. would just say, adding on to what, what Molly's, Mentioning, I mean, she's pointing to a couple features that have become part of the Olympic machine, and that's the, the iron fist of displacement, just kicking people out of their homes or sweeping them away if they're homeless. And then there's the sort of velvet glove of gentrification, the Airbnbification of the United States, that the Olympics will really just serve to jumpstart. And if you look at the history of the Olympics is pretty bracing when it comes to homeless populations. Just take Atlanta, the last city in the United States that hosted the Summer Olympics, and in the lead-up to those Atlanta games in 96, the homeless population were essentially given one-way tickets to southern states. Down here's a one-way ticket to Mississippi. Just get out of here. We don't want you here because the Olympics are hyper-aware of public image And they don't want to have homeless people around the area in front of the camera when NBC swoops in to cover the games.
0: Jules, I want to ask you about um, the potential of taxpayers being on the hook financially. Obviously, the Olympics have a pretty horrible track record on this. But defenders of the games coming to L.A. would point to, I think, the fact that it has hosted two prior games and is in a better financial position because it has already existing sports infrastructure. What's your take on that?
2: Well, there's no question that in the 21st century, we get a sort of celebration capitalism, a sort of type of capitalism where the public pays for the Olympics and the private entities that sit around tend to profit. There are cost overruns with nearly every Olympics in recent times. And who's on the hook? It's always the taxpayers. And sure, the bid is at least the 2024 bid for Los Angeles was $5.3 billion dollars. But if you look closely at their bids, they actually don't include security in their costs. And so wow. they're basically <laughs> saying that, yeah, $2 billion at least. So if you look carefully at the Los Angeles budget for their Olympic bid, they do not include security costs. And people on the conservative side say that's going to cost about $2 billion. It could go way through the roof. Security costs are one of those things that tend to escalate around the Olympics. And so they're basically saying the federal government is will swoop in and pay those costs. In other words, people across the country will chip in if they're taxpayers to pay for the cost of the Olympics. So really, if we're taking a conservative estimate of $2 billion for security, you add that to the $5.3 billion for the Los Angeles price tag, and it's already $7 billion. And so that's a lot of money. Um, it's true that they have venues that are already constructed, so they're not going to have to do a ton of new builds. But you know, one thing that's really not being talked about—I don't think enough in the press—is that they still have to negotiate the contracts with these existing venues, and now these existing venues all of a sudden have tons of leverage because they know the Olympics are coming. They can jack up their price, and that'll escalate the price tag through time. So um, there is. The and trend. these are venues
0: that were initially constructed at some public expense, expense. I I would assume, and now they're under private ownership.
2: Oftentimes, yes. I mean, there's often tons of taxpayer money thrown into these things. That's definitely the zeitgeist here in the United States.
1: Yeah, one of the things that's been so insane about this bid is that they haven't actually released a real budget yet for the 2028 games. They, they sort of made a budget for the 2026, 2024 bid, uh, and then they just, you know, slightly moved things around and said, oh, now it's a 2028 number. Um, But, you know, they haven't actually even released a number for the budget. So that is not very confidence building, obviously, you know, and we keep saying, you know, what if a natural disaster happens? What if, if any number of things happen in the next 11 years is such an insanely long time until this even takes place that so much could change in Los Angeles that sort of, you know, their promises that everything will work out and everything will come in under budget. It doesn't seem very believable.
0: Um, I want to ask you, Molly, about a little more about how DSA um, ended up taking on this campaign and what the campaign looks like on the ground. Can you tell me about about how that happened?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, this campaign came out of work we were doing in DSA with um, Skid Row residents and their attempt to form a neighborhood council so that they could protect themselves against sort of the downtown developer interests that they know want to push them out and want to want to completely just sweep Skid Row and make Skid Row not a place anymore. So from talking to those people, we, we sort of realized that a lot of issues that we were dealing with through DSA about Los Angeles, issues about housing, issues about uh, immigration rights, that all of these things were going to be just completely exacerbated by an Olympics uh, and... One of the things we think is very terrifying about the Olympics is that they're allowed to declare it a special security event, which means they can sort of bring in—they have to bring in these these you know militarized uh, security for the Olympics. And what they've done historically during the Olympics and in 1984, especially, was use that as an excuse to ramp up policing, to militarize the police. And, uh, you know, we feel very strongly that the 84 Olympics, when uh, they sent the police to Israel to train with the Israeli Defense Force and, you know, brought in a lot of battering ram type stuff, they they started bringing in military equipment for the LAPD, um, that this was the beginning of the full-scale militarization of the police, uh, and it really was influential across America, um, that this happened. And so when they, when they say that the 1984 Olympics were a success, um, you know, we, we say for who, if they were profitable, who were they profitable for? Um, but you know, really who got hurt by this and who is going to get hurt by this? Um, and you know, LA is just, uh, in a very interesting place right now where what we really are afraid of is that it's going to just become a complete luxury destination where only rich people are welcome and nothing about the uh, the Olympic bid has, has calmed us on that front.
0: One obstacle it seems that you guys have in terms of organizing in terms of the 84 Olympics is that I do think that they're pretty fondly remembered by a lot of people and polls currently show that a large majority of Angelino's Do want the Olympics to come, though those polls have not, I don't think, included information about the city possibly having to pick up the tab for cost overruns, which would be pretty critical information to include. How do you think about um, sort of everyday Angelinos catching Olympics fever um, from an organizer's perspective?
1: Well, I mean they haven't um they haven't actually done real polling is one of our one of our concerns. They they had one poll and they trotted out as like everybody wants this, but you know, they didn't really actually spend spend any time talking to people in the city about the issues. And you know, they just wanna they just are, are pushing it as this sort of nationalistic everybody wants this thing, even though anyone who saw what happened in Rio and Sochi knows that this is not a good thing for cities. This is something that Every city it comes to, and um, you know we we don't believe it's going to be a boon for Los Angeles, or that if it is, it's going to be a boon for only the very wealthy who will also not be hurt by the consequences uh, of displacement and police militarization in the same way as poor, more vulnerable residents of the city. So, yeah, I mean, it's really an education campaign. It's about getting people. You know, telling people about why maybe the Olympics might be bad for a city, and how you know we're not we're not saying that people should feel guilty about having consumed the Olympics on TV in the past, <laughs> or about you know liking sports or caring about athletes. Um, we want. All these I do. Sports. I do have
0: pretty fond memories of '96 uh, uh, gymnastics. That was kind of solid.
1: Sure, and you know, one thing we've been saying too is it's unfair to women that are fans of sports that this is really the only opportunity they get to see a lot of female athletes, uh, and some women's sports that aren't normally shown on TV. Um, but you know, we think there are other ways for those sports to be, to be championed besides the Olympics. And, um, you know, I come into this little perspective because my, my grandmother was, um, an Olympic athlete, uh, in Germany in 1936 she was a German Jew who was supposed to be on the German team who was kicked off at the last second for being a Jew when they realized that you know for the optics they didn't have to be inclusive you know they were sort of testing the waters of how openly they could they could sort of push the Aryan agenda on the world through the 1936 Olympics and you know, my grandmother was, was sort of the victim of this because she just wanted to be a great athlete and she wanted to, to be a high jumper and to prove, you know, that Jews were athletically, athletically superior in the way that the Nazis didn't believe them to be. Um, and she never got that opportunity, um, because, you know, the Olympics are this, because they're very corrupt and, um, you know, that's obviously had a big influence on me throughout my life in terms of just being very skeptical of big nationalistic spectacles and of being skeptical of, uh, anyone claiming exceptionalism. So, you know, I see LA claiming that we're going to pull off the Olympics and have none of the problems that all these other cities, that every other city that's ever hosted them has as just, you know, crazy. It's, um, it's assuming this level of exceptionalism that I just don't believe in. You know, I think L.A. is a great city, but it's not, you know, the greatest city that's better than every other city and will somehow solve all the issues that no other big city was able to solve during the Olympics.
0: Jules, how do you think or how have you seen um, critics of the Olympics and the left around the world um, deal with the sort of fairy dust that the IOC um, is able to spread over the Olympic Games and people's kind of earnestly fun? Fond- feelings for it? How how have you seen people effectively relate to that reality?
2: Well, I think for starters, you know, I've been in Vancouver, I was living in London during the Olympics. I lived in Rio in the lead up to the Olympics and during the Olympics. And I talked to and worked with a lot of activist groups in, in each of those cities. And one thing is that many of them made the distinction between the athletes who they absolutely support, whether it's women athletes finally getting the platform they deserve or other athletes that they just happen to appreciate their sporty techniques. Activists in all these cities make the distinction between the athletes who are participating in the games and the elites who are benefiting from the process of the Olympics. And one thing, because the Olympics have become such a monstrous behemoth, they tend to roll over the toes of lots of different activist groups. So if you look at the list of supporters and allies in the No Olympics LA campaign, you get a flavor for all the groups that are going to be affected by the Olympics and already realize it. And I've seen that in city after city and up in Vancouver, not too far up the road from Portland, Oregon, where I live. I talked with activists. I interviewed many of them and they talked about, the, they're actually excited. The Olympics brought together a number of activists from separate communities that kind of were living in silos that had to come together to fight the Olympics. And that solidarity extended to struggles after the games. And so I guess that is one sort of side benefit of the Olympics being so big, is that it does bring together activist communities that might otherwise be separate.
0: So speaking from elites enriching themselves from the game, Jules, can you um, say a little bit about the International Olympic Committee or IOC?
2: Yes, there's so much to say about the International Olympic Committee. I mean, it started off as this gaggle of barons and dukes and all this royalty, <laughs> and they've, they've actually kept that moving forward. There's an inordinate number of princes and princesses and sheikhs that are in the group right now. Um, I say princesses, but they weren't actually even allowed. Women were not allowed in the IOC until 1981. You heard that right. The Reagan era, for God's sake. You know, so... I mean, this is not a progressive organization, and they do whatever it takes to protect themselves. And, you know, their per diems are out of this world. If you're on the executive board of the International Olympic Committee and you go to one of these meetings like they're in in Lima this week, uh, you can get $900 a day in per diem. That's in addition <laughs> to all the finest cheese and lamb or whatever they eat. Uh, $900 per diem in, per day. In so- Trumpian
0: In Trumpian terms, that's a lot of uh, steak with ketchup on it.
2: Yeah. I mean, Trump might be jealous at the kind of things that they're pulling in here because the perks are enormous. And so, yeah, I mean, they're totally self-interested. They're way out of touch. At the same time, there's sort of this, this thin swath of cosmopolitan elites that really don't have time for Trump, actually, in a sort of crudeness. He's seen as too crude for them. So if you look at like the vote that just happened for 2024 Olympics, most people who you ask to follow the Olympic bidding carefully, uh, they say that LA would have probably won the vote and not Paris, but the Trump factor meant that these IOC elites were not going to vote for uh, an L.A. Olympics that could possibly have Trump at the at the helm in 2024 if he were reelected. So it's it's a really interesting, uh, super rich group of incredibly privileged people who run the entire Olympic machine.
0: Molly, do you want to add anything?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, just, you know, one thing we keep bringing up is that an IOC member makes more in a day for attending the Olympics than an Olympic athlete makes in a month for being an athlete in the Olympics. So, you know, again, it's not that we are against sports or against uh, togetherness or anything. We're actually very pro togetherness. (laughs) One one thing great about this campaign has been meeting people just across the world who also are opposing Olympic campaigns. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues coming up with the next games in 2020 in Tokyo related to environmental issues. They've been, you know, plowing, plowing down forests that are endangered and, uh, they want to hold one of the swimming events in Fukushima, which is a, you know, radioactive contaminated zone. So just, um, you know, talking to people all over the world and finding this common ground, because that's the thing is it's not just that we don't want Los Angeles to have to host the Olympics. We don't want any city to have to host the Olympics and to have to foot foot the bill both monetary and, you know, in terms of human rights, because there's just so much evidence that it's a human rights disaster everywhere it goes. And you know, we don't believe that Los Angeles is some exceptional, place that will be able to circumvent these things. And, you know, in fact, we really think that this is sort of a, a, a backdoor way for developers and rich people to push their interests. And when they say, oh, it's like a party for the whole city, you know, it's really a party for them. And we will all get to watch it on TV. Um, but, you know, that is that is not enough of a reason to host the Olympics.
0: My last question for both of you is if you could kind of define the utopian horizon here, is it to abolish the Olympics or transform the Olympics into something very different from what it is now, something that's people-centered and controlled and decommercialized?
1: We want to abolish the IOC, is what I'm <laughs> going to say. Um, we think, you know, we, I'm not saying it's not possible for there to be an international sports event Um, Without corruption, it seems very hard to pull off for whatever reason. Um, But yeah, we would just like to get corruption out of the Olympics and to abolish the IOC and uh, to make it a sustainable event that doesn't exploit cities if it is to
2: continue. Jules? Well, I would just say first, right now, the International Olympic Committee, despite the fact that they'll stand up behind this sort of shimmering scrim and say how wonderful the Olympics are, the win-win-win of Paris, IOC, and Los Angeles, the reality is serious uncertainties lurk in the near future and the far future as well. So like Pyeongchang, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics that are coming up, ticket sales are lagging there. You have unpaid laborers who are demanding to be paid, who worked on the venues and then, of course, you have the fact that Pyeongchang sits a mere fifty miles from North Korea as Trump and Kim Jong- Un ramp up their bellicose rhetoric. And then on then another front, you've got the vote buying that was happening just recently in Rio. It was found out that Carlos Newsman, the head of the Brazilian, Olympics was actually found with a Russian passport, $155,000 in cash in his apartment and multiple currencies. And there's also a vote buying scandal around the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. I say all that to say this, they might say everything's going great, the IOC, but in reality, they're in a relatively weakened position right now. And with that weakened position comes the possibility of change. So right now with The Olympics ramping up and getting ready in February in South Korea, in Pyeongchang. uh, We should put the Olympics on hiatus if it becomes too dangerous for the athletes and everybody in the area who just lives there. This would be a good chance to put the games on hiatus, take a break, take inventory. Ban Ki-moon just took over as head of the ethics uh, committee uh, just today. It's Thursday of, of the IOC Give him some actual autonomy because currently the Ethics Commission reports to the head, the executive board of the IOC. Give him some autonomy to start pushing through some serious changes around the corruption. Uh, You know, that's one of the things that I really regret about what happened with Los Angeles and their bidders is that they really missed the fact that we're in a historic moment for the history of the Olympics. And they were actually in position to push back. I mean, they could have demanded millions and millions to throw into Skid Row for for housing and for other issues around the people who already live there. Instead, they were sort of like this, you know, greyhound at the racetrack following the mechanical rabbit monomaniacally as it zipped around the track. They were so excited to get the Olympics that they just, you know, basically dropped the ball in terms of extracting concessions. But just because the L.A. bidders, I'm talking Casey Wasserman, I'm talking Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, they dropped the ball But that doesn't mean that it's not possible right now to really change the Olympics. I, I for one, kind of, I guess, am a little bit more partial to either just putting them on hiatus for a while until they figure some of these things out, or getting on a rotation of, like, five cities. But even that's not necessarily ideal. Um, It's a tough quandary, but there's no question that... Uh, we need to change up the Olympics and reorient the whole thing so it actually does serve the people of the city instead of the sort of hoax that exists right now where they say it does, but it actually hurts the everyday people.
1: Yeah, I mean, Garcetti and Wasserman, who are the two people that really pushed the L.A. bid, you know, are just completely out of touch with the realities of normal day-to-day Angelenos. Uh, There was a quote from Wasserman where he said something about like, oh, you know, downtown is so great. No one had ever been there before five years ago, which is just like something only an out-of-touch rich person would say, you know, who has never been downtown until it became a very fancy rich person place and who, you know, has not spent any time around Skid Row and other parts of Los Angeles that are very much the heart of Los Angeles, uh, you know, we think um and you know those those people won't be affected by by the consequences and that is why they were pushing for it so hard and you know it was a very undemocratic process we were obviously trying to to get involved to to speak out against it and they really just didn't even want to let us be in a room where things were happening in order to make our points because you know i believe they know that we're right and they just don't care because it won't affect them um, you know, and Wasserman and Garcetti both, uh, they call themselves the 84 boys because they both went to the 1984 Olympics. They were both such wealthy kids that they were able to, you know, attend the 84 games as, you know, rich kids. Um, but anyone who, you know, and anyone who studies the history of L.A., you know, we very strongly believe that the militarization and, and ramping up of police militarization, um, that occurred during the 84 games um, was really directly led to the 92 uprising, um, which is known as the LA riots um, because people in vulnerable communities just realized they were being treated differently. And the sort of uh, just insane uh, police techniques that started during the 84 games were ramped up throughout the eighties in vulnerable poor communities in Los Angeles. Uh, especially black and brown communities in South L.A. And so I don't think those people who lived through that do think about the 84 games fondly, you know, even if if maybe you enjoyed watching some of it on TV, just the, the actual effect that it had holding it in Los Angeles in 84 was just completely devastating for the city.
0: Molly and Jules, thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much. It was really nice to talk
0: to you. Jules Boykoff is the author of three books on the Olympics. Most recently, Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, from Verso. Molly Lambert is a writer and member of DSA Los Angeles. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once muttered to no one in particular, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting two new podcasts every week, thanks to your support. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by the great Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our podcast. Also, leave us a glowing review if it's on iTunes. They do help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling all of your friends, whether in person, on the phone, or via social media. And find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution. We appreciate them and we need them to keep these things going.